0: And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro-access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions.
1: When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice.
0: Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end.
1: But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best.
0: Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here.
1: REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark Spark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated.
0: How the hell did Time Suck get here? How did I get into stand-up? Where do I hope to take Time Suck from here? Learn a lot about me and a lot about Time Suck because we go meta, and we have the Suck Suck itself today on this 1,000 bonus edition episode of Time Suck. You're listening
1: to Time Suck.
0: All right, no announcements uh, on this special 1,000 uh, review episode. Other, other than to say I, just, I owe you another bonus episode, you sons of bitches. Because uh, now there are over 1,100 reviews on iTunes. God damn it. So uh, two weeks from now, the 11th bonus episode uh, will be coming out on Time Suck. And what should it be? Uh, you're going to decide again. Uh, is it going to be D.B. Cooper, a mysterious man who may have escaped with $200,000 in ransom money after hijacking a Northwest Airlines flight in 1971. And then he just jumped out of the fucking plane somewhere, uh, allegedly, we think, near Portland, Oregon. He was never found. Or, or what about Bruce Lee? Martial arts badass, right? Who died somewhat mysteriously at the age of 32? What a legacy he has left. How much do we really know about his life? Or, you know, Halloween is coming up. How about the Amityville uh, house haunting? Amityville, man, that uh, that's supposedly the most haunted house in America. Is it really haunted? Do I really believe in it? Would I fucking spend the night there? Probably not. So uh, if you want to vote on one of those, uh, I'm going to post on um, the choices on at timesuck on Instagram, whichever topic has the most votes by this coming Friday, the 13th. How perfect is that at midnight? That'll be the bonus topic. The next one for Friday, the 20th. And you guys, I think already have like 25 more reviews on iTunes towards the, the next bonus. So uh, apparently this is almost going to be a, a twice a week podcast. Motherfucker. Uh, so now let's get into today's show Uh, let's suck the suck and let's start with a little uh, time suck timeline about myself and if you hear any uh, different um, uh, kind of uh, sounds with this this episode it sounds a little different I'm just in a different room again I am uh, in Los Angeles I'm at my manager's house in her living room recording right now so uh, I got my little mobile studio set up there so that's why it sounds different if it does sound different so let's get into this time suck timeline Trap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. May seventeenth, nineteen seventy-seven. Daniel Brent Cummins was the first child born to Daniel Neal Cummins, twenty-three-year-old logger, Pentecostal preacher's son, who has just moved to Riggins a few years prior. Riggins, Idaho, with his uh, was four of his his five brothers. Uh, little Riggins in Idaho County, Idaho, right in the right in the middle of. The, the state at the bottom of the northern Idaho panhandle, there. And on May 18th, young Danny speaks his first words. He says, I, don't, I won't be a podcaster. And people are amazed and confused. How could a fucking baby speak so early? But what in God's name is a podcast? Uh, Danny's uh, mother, uh, yes, I will continue to occasionally refer to myself in the third person today, uh, is Charlene Renee Cummins, a beautiful waitress who was just turned 19 a few days before the birth of their first kid. Uh, while the senior Daniel has spent his childhood kind of moving around from Kansas to California to Alaska to Idaho, just, just kind of all over the place, following his father, you know, moving from one assembly god uh, church to the next, Charlene has lived in Riggins her whole life. Uh, and life is pretty good for the young couple. Young Danny uh, uh, at this time, and that's, I say Danny because as a kid, that's what a pe- people always uh, called me, uh, was Danny. Uh, my, my family still calls me Danny. Um, you know, young Danny spent a lot of time with his, with his mom's his grandparents. Grandpa, uh, Grandpa Ward, Grandma Betty Ward and Betty Hall, and his teenage aunt Stell. Uh, Loggers made almost as much in the late seventies as they do now. So the young couple had, you know, plenty of money. They had friends, family in small town Idaho. But then around nineteen seventy nine, uh, Danny's uh, young parents have some marital problems, as young couples do, and his dad moves to Anchorage, Alaska. His uh, his dad's father, his uh, pastor Bill Cummins, has recently moved back to Alaska uh, to preach in Cordova. And Dan Sr.'s younger brothers, Phil, John, and Paul, have moved back to Alaska as well. Dan Sr. moves uh, to work in construction with his brother Phil, the trade he was kind of raised in, uh, his pastor father working as a, as a construction framer, alongside working as a, as a pastor his uh, entire adult life. And then sometime around uh, 1980, sometime during 1980, Charlene and young Danny moved to Anchorage to join Dan in Alaska, see if the marriage is going to work. So the marriage approves uh, enough to produce a second child, Donna, Donna Lee, Donna Lee Cummins uh, born on August 1st 1982. and Donna is noticeably uh, less attractive and uh, far less intelligent as her older brother. Uh, she would she would go on to live in his immense fucking Greek godlike shadow forever. <laughs> kidding uh, my sister uh, my little sister is, is very smart and uh, very pretty. Uh, she is weak she is physically weak. I will say that she cannot deny that uh, still can't do one push-up. fucking wimp fucking wimp. But I love her. Uh, Also, 1982. uh, Danny attends kindergarten at Garfield Elementary, where he remembers getting punched in the face for saying a lot of stupid shit to kids who were bigger and punchier than him. Uh, Seriously, I've I've uh, a preposterous amount of memories of getting punched as a little kid, and 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 I feel like I deserved all of them. I just have like a sequence of memories uh, with me and like different kids, like these flash memories from early grade school where. Like, like I remember one. Remember looking to some little buddy of mine with some kind of attitude of like, heh hey, check this shit out, and then just walking over and and like. And I remember him looking at me like, I don't think this is a good idea. And these other two kids that were older and bigger were like having like a rock fight, just weird, just on the on the playground during recess in Anchorage. I remember it was like fucking anarchy. Apparently there was no teachers' aides monitoring anything. These kids are just standing facing each other, just about I don't know, thirty feet apart, just throwing rocks at each other. And I think it's a good idea to tap one of them on the shoulder and say some smart-ass comment, and he responds immediately with a punch to the face. And, you know, and it just kind of went on like that for a variety <laughs> a variety of other punches. Uh, Dan Sr. works in construction. Uh, the family uh, lives with Phil, Uncle Phil, and Phil's family initially. Later, uh, they get an apartment to themselves. Then they rent a house, and Danny's uncles, John and Paul, live with him. I keep going back and forth between referring to myself and referring to myself as Dan. This is very weird for me to do this episode. But kind of fun. Uh, A lot of moving around in my young life, and young Danny's life. Uh, 1984, I uh, switch elementary schools to Sand Lake Elementary. Start third grade in 1984. Uh, While the the parents' marriage crumbles. You know, it's kind of easier to talk about myself in the third person, as if it's not me for some of this. Uh, Shortly after starting school in Sand Lake, Dan and Charlene, uh, Dan Sr., separate. Uh, Charlene's dad, uh, you know, uh, Ward flies up to Anchorage and drives. Charlene, Danny, Donna... Uh, All the way back down to Riggins while Dan Sr. stays behind in Anchorage. And, uh, yeah, you know, definitely a tough period uh, in childhood there. I was definitely a dad's kid and serious bummer to uh, say goodbye to dad there and not know what was going to go on. Uh, 1984, shortly after returning to Riggins, little old me remembers making other kids laugh for the first time. That's the the comedy beginnings. 1984. My third grade teacher in Riggins, uh, Mrs. Williamson, is asking all the kids in class who had pets. I have no idea why. Uh, I guess it must have been related to some kind of project we were doing and when it came to me, I don't know why I said this, I don't know where this came from, uh, but I do remember just saying that I had a cheetah living under my sink Uh, and apparently that was a good joke in third grade, it fucking killed, Uh, everybody was laughing and uh, I was a new kid in a small school that didn't get many new kids. There was only about 25 kids in the in the class at that time. I was the only kid whose parents were divorced, uh, which made me an oddity. A lot of where's your dad questions. But then when I, when I said, you know, uh, this thing, and word got out that I was funny, now I was cool. And I was accepted by the cool kids in class. God, I remember worrying if they were going to accept me. It was Ryan Shaw, Kim Dowdy, Holly Tumbleson, Michelle Gazinski, cool kids. Uh, and Rachel Burnett. And Rachel Burnett. And uh, I was well-liked by the rest of the class. You know, life was all right. Life was all right. Got a golden retriever named Sam. It was the best dog a young boy could hope for. Love that dog. And for the next few years, I was raised primarily by my grandparents, uh, Ward and Betty, while my mom worked a bunch uh, and my dad was kind of you know out of the picture for the most part. They were really like a second set of parents. Uh, I also spent a lot of time with my grandma Betty's parents, my maternal great grandparents, which I know is rare. Most people never even get to. They're not, not alive uh, when their great grandparents are also alive. But I uh, got to spend a lot of time with them. They were able bodied, you know. They had uh, you know their their minds were sharp. Uh, you know, I'd go there for lunch all the time and hang out and play around and yeah it was, it was great my great grandpa John was from Sweden great grandma Stella was raised uh, Norwegian in Minnesota her parents immigrating over from Norway just before she was born and it was cool to hear them speak in a different language Yeah, they'd argue in fucking Swedish and Norwegian to have their weird Muppet talk I loved it uh, they would speak that more than they spoke English it just seemed cool to me my great grandpa John had a National Geographic subscription and he'd give me all the maps from them, and I loved maps for some reason as a kid I hung them on the walls in my room uh, Grandpa John had almanacs, Guinness Book, uh, uh, World Records, random trivia books, and I just read that stuff all the time. And that was where a great k- kind of curiosity about the world was, you know, born inside of me. And, and they had a globe, which uh, I don't know if that's normal for kids, but I used to play a lot with the globe. Um, nobody else had the globe in the family, and I remember I would just like study the countries. And just, yeah, you know, I would do this weird game with my great grandma still where you just spin the globe and you kind of put your finger on it and then wear it up uh, wherever your finger kind of ended. You know, like wherever you stop, that's where you talk about living. So if it ended, you know, Algeria, you talk about what you thought life was like in Algeria. Just, I don't know how, how normal or abnormal that is. I didn't see much of my dad again for the kind of, you know, those couple years there. Uh, maybe just a couple weekends in total, actually, but we did talk on the phone uh, almost every Sunday. I uh, had a best friend, Kyler Wilson, kid a year older. And uh, good friends with his older brother Chance as well, rode my bike all the time, explored the woods around town, fished, shot birds with my BB gun, Uh, you know, Idaho shit, felt bad when I killed him, (laughs) picked on my little sister. And around 1986, when we moved from a rental uh, property my grandpa Ward owned to a trailer down the street that my mom bought, um, I harassed the religiously homeschooled kids next door. Uh, Ruthlessly, my dark sense of humor emerging, I would tell Paul Emery, uh, a kid a year younger than me, who was very, very religious, uh, that I worshiped the devil. I would talk about Satan all all the time just to freak him out because it would just get him so riled up. Uh, I make crank calls in the days before caller ID to other people around town. Uh, I tried. uh, I tried signing the pastor up. I'm kind of proud of this one actually for a Playboy subscription. You know, it was like back when like you know Playboy would have some I don't know phone number would pop up in a commercial and you know call this number just to get a subscription. I didn't think about how you had to have like a credit card, (laughs) that kind of stuff, and proof of payment. I, I just tried to. Fred Emery, the pastor next door, I tried to get him a Playboy subscription because I thought that would be just fucking hilarious to have him try and explain that to his family. <laughs> uh, uh, Kyler come over from sleepovers. We'd sneak out in the middle of the night, go change the signs in, uh, of the businesses around town. They had those signs that were just kind of like low to the ground, and they had those pop-out letters. So, you know, you change snow cones to blow blow snows or blow cones or change a hotel's nightly rate from $39 to $3. No vacancy became vacancy. Just dumb shit like that. Sometime around 1986, my uh, mom started dating again. She dated some delivery driver dude named Bob, who I thought, yeah, Bob's okay. He's okay. But then she met Tim Hinckley, a logging mechanic who lived in Whitebird, Idaho, a little town of about 130 people, probably more like 80 or 90 now, to be honest, uh, And uh, 30 miles from Riggins. And uh, Tim was uh, known locally by his nickname of Spud. I shit you not. A man... Known as Spud, living in Idaho County, Idaho. What a what a cliche, right? A dude from Idaho just loving potatoes so much that he gets a nickname of Spud. Well, uh, I liked Spud. I still do. He's a, he's a great stepdad. I had, had a satellite. Uh, he had a satellite TV. This is why I liked him as a kid. He had a satellite TV. He had a twenty-two rifle. Uh, he let me shoot. Uh, he didn't tell me what to do. And he had a Nintendo. What is not to like? He also had four kids who lived uh, with his ex-wife in Lewis, in Idaho. Uh, Jennifer, who was a year older than me, Jake, who was my age, uh, two younger girls, Jody and Mickey. Uh, Jody, Mickey, and uh, Jennifer are all doing well in life somewhere right now. Uh, Jake, sadly, would uh, take his own life much later uh, after uh, some some rough early adulthood of uh, don't do heroin. Let's just say that do not do do not get into heroin. Um, uh, so yeah, so I you know I'd see them here and there. We all got along by 1988, I think 88. You know, probably should ask my mom. Uh, they get married. Had a stepdad now, officially now, who, who came and lived with us in Riggins. and uh, super cool thing he had, he had the uh, what was known as the black box. I don't remember other other uh, people really talking about this, but in small towns, you had these big ass satellites, and um, like very different than the direct TV satellite dishes now. I mean, these things, I'm not kidding, the radius uh, uh, or the, of this satellite had to have been like four feet, five feet. It was enormous, enormous, enormous satellite, and like it would move. You know, when you you position it to track up with satellites, and you would get this thing called a, it was just called like the black box, totally illegal, and it would descramble all of, like literally all of the channels. So you would pay you would pay like a one time fee, I think, for this black box, and you would just illegally get all of the channels. And uh, that was like a thing a lot of people had. We had that, and uh, and I remember Playboy uh, was on there, Spice was on there, these early kind of porn channels, and uh, that was that was. Awesome as a young boy uh, Because, you know, uh, there was parental lock On this, and my and my mom And stepdad would lock me out of, you know, those channels But I found in the instruction manual, The reset code, the master reset code That you could just always punch in To erase, on, you know, whatever Lock they had on it, so, yeah So that was my introduction to uh, Naked Ladies, uh, so thanks stepdad <laughs> 1989 Started off a little rough, my my dog Sam but a neighbor kid, Jeremy Baker, that motherfucker I never liked that kid and he wasn't supposed to be in my yard anyway, but he came over my yard, even though I didn't want him to. And he, and he was a couple years older, and he tried pulling a bone like a dickhead out of my dog's mouth. He was harassing my dog, Sam, and my dog bit him. Uh, and he should have bit him. And, uh, but then my mom, afraid she'd be sued, she took Sam away, and she told me Sam went to go live on a farm. And I was dumb enough to believe that there was actually a farmer out there who wanted a man-biting dog. He didn't live on a farm. He was taken out to the woods, and he was executed. Uh, he was shot. Oh, my sister and I spent half the summer after I finished sixth grade in 1989 with my dad in Oak Creek, Arizona, a little town just out of Sedona, Arizona, not too far from Flagstaff. And uh, my dad had uh, followed a girlfriend. Julie down there was living with her. And I remember going to work with my dad who was uh, working in construction. I ding around the job site where he framed, you know, playing in the woods nearby, reading a book, whatever, cleaning up scraps of wood, sweeping other piles up, just kind of staying busy. Killing time, Uh, and and I loved hanging out with him. I loved driving to work with my dad. We'd hit the Circle K convenience store before work, and I'd get a a box of old-fashioned glazed donuts, some chocolate milk for breakfast. I still love convenience stores, and I still love glazed donuts to this day. Chocolate milk, not so much. Lactose intolerance kind of killed that for me. Uh, Back in Riggins, uh, I got really into basketball in junior high. Uh, This is crazy. When I was 12, I could jump from the foul line, and I could dunk on a regulation rim, like fucking hard. I had a a 49-inch vertical leap. Uh, I was, and I still am, a phenomenal athlete. Just yesterday, just yesterday, messing around with my kid, I threw a football uh, through a spare tire hanging from a tree that was 200 yards away. Ten out of ten times, none of that happened. That's fucking bullshit. I was never that athletic. I was actually very small and slow in junior high. Uh, I stopped growing for several years as a kid. I remember it really freaked me out. Like I would say, like around fourth through like eighth grade, I just didn't fucking grow. <laughs> and by 8th by grade I was the shortest and the smallest kid Like weight and everything Just just overall size, height, everything The tiniest kid in my class Out of both the boys and the girls uh, But I was into sports uh, you know, And I was good at it for a little guy uh, My friends got into sports as well They also got into girls I could not figure out girls I was like the ones who did not uh, like me And I had no interest in the girls who liked me very much Because uh, I was a moron But well, you know what, whatever, I had fun I had a Nintendo So who needs girls when you're a kid And you have Super Mario Brothers, Zelda, and Contra God, I miss the days of having so many hours of free time to play video games. I fucking loved video games so much. I still love video games. Uh, by the summer of 1990, my dad had moved to Las Vegas, uh, living in an apartment complex called Anchor Village, if that's still around, near what was called the Lakes neighborhood. Uh, he'd, he'd moved there after visiting the town because the construction trade was booming, and he had met a blackjack dealer named Colleen Fitzpatrick, and they were married two weeks later because that's what my dad did. He Full speed ahead, always, in whatever direction he felt like going. Had a stepmom before I even knew my dad had a girlfriend. Uh, That's how he rolled. Uh, Once my dad makes up his mind, he's going to do something. Uh, Doesn't matter how fucking dumb the idea is. He is going to do it, and he's going to do it with conviction. And then sometimes years later, he'll realize, oh, maybe that was really, really stupid. Uh, But he means well. My sister Donna and I spent most of the summer in Vegas, which was uh, like a different planet compared to Riggins. Uh, there were a lot of people who weren't white that was new for us <laughs> Rickens is quite white uh, there were huge buildings Rickens didn't even doesn't even have a, a single building bigger than two stories and and even those are rare kids had earrings dyed hair uh, kids wore hammer pants Z cvarcis I had my first black friend you know uh, some kid who lived uh, in a building uh, I don't know over in the same complex and we fucking I don't know dinked around, we're kids um, the complex had swimming pools where, where attractive women would lay out bikinis that was also new, did not see that back in Riggins uh, I liked that very much uh, by 1991 when I was in 8th grade I wanted to live with my dad full time life was good in Riggins but I was just a dad's yeah, I was a daddy's boy and uh, you know, I made the mistake of telling my mom uh, that I wanted to go live with my dad she lost her goddamn mind uh, as, uh, as as mothers may do in those situations when you tell them that you want to go live somewhere else, I uh, try to negotiate some kind of 50 50 situation, you know, and she wasn't into it. So then in the summer of 1991, or 1991, excuse me, I asked my dad if I could just stay at the end of summer break and not go back to, to Idaho and Riggins. And he and my stepmom, Colleen, agreed. And my sister went back and I stayed. So Donna went back, I stayed in Vegas. And it pains me to this day that I had to split up for my sister that way. I, I don't regret going to live with my dad because I needed to know what that felt like, but I hate that I had to leave my sister to do it. Uh, 1991, I started high school Bonanza high school in Las Vegas, Nevada. I had over 600 kids in my class. Uh, Riggins did not have that many people in the whole town. Only about 500, like huge culture shock. I went from being the the starting point guard, (laughs) my little scrawny ass on the basketball team, uh, Riggins to not being good enough to make the team at all. Of course not in Las Vegas. Uh, I mean these are kids that are going to play college ball and stuff. I remember doing actually this Nike basketball camp right when I got there to like you know just kind of suss out the competition. I was one of maybe two kids that were just going into like uh, uh ninth grade, like like somewhere between like uh, eighth and ninth grade, uh very end there, that they couldn't dunk. Like all these most of these other kids could already dunk. They're hitting like, you know, jumpers, three pointers. I mean, these kids are good. I'm I'm like, I can do a reverse layup. I can do a reverse layup. Um I went from not knowing, you know, from knowing pretty much everyone in school and Riggins and having a lot of friends to not knowing a single kid in my class in Bonanza. So that sucked. Uh, Combine all of that with an awkward growth spurt where I finally grew and just grew a bunch. I grew about six inches uh, in what felt like a few months. And I put on zero pounds. I just like stretched out. And I was already skinny. And so now I'm just like very anorexic looking. And when I look at pictures of myself, I I had an acne breakout. Uh, I was a social fucking leper. Guess who's sitting alone at lunch? This guy. Uh, <laughs> I became friends with a, a few other outcasts, a few other pariahs. Uh, and then I met uh, two kids, Russ and Chris, who lived in my apartment complex in Anchor Village, who seemed super cool. Actually, that's not true. Chris lived right next door in whatever, some condos. But right on the edge. It felt like he lived in Anchor Village. Chris was a year older. Uh, Russ was two years older. Uh, and both of them just thought it was cool. They thought it was cool enough to hang out with them. I don't know. They thought it was funny. So yay me. Man. Russ seemed like a movie star, man. He was a super muscular uh Thai kid uh with this gorgeous uh Persian girlfriend he made sure we all knew he was having sex with and a lot of it. (laughs) I still hadn't even kissed a girl. Uh he had a red two-door sports car. I can't remember the model, but I remember it looked fucking cool. And uh no one in Anchor Village messed with Russ, dude. He was the man. He was a dude. He was everything I wanted to be. He was a dude with big pecs, washboard abs, sports car, girlfriend with huge boobs. You had sex with him, and he was Asian. I always wanted to be Asian. No, actually, I never cared what race I was. Uh, But Russ thought I was funny. Again, we played Madden on a Sega Genesis. Russ thought I was... uh, uh, And and Chris thought I was cool, you know, which is awesome. And they were friends. And Chris was was fucking insane. Chris was also a social leper, but different uh, by choice. He was an outcast by choice. He was a true nihilist, looking back. A true anarchist. He just... He thrived on mayhem and destruction. Uh, He just didn't give a shit about anything. Uh, just, uh, so much anarchy energy around. He's a skinny redheaded kid whose dad wasn't around. Dad was completely out of the picture and mom was barely around and he loved breaking shit. He loved stealing stuff, pissing people off, setting shit on fire, uh, that sort of thing. And he took me under his dark wing. And by 1992, Chris and I were inseparable. Uh, life had not been working on Vegas. Like I hoped, you know, school was rough. There was a lot of different cliques. I didn't fit into any of them. There was jocks, stoners, preppies, gangbangers. Uh, or at least kids who claim to be gangbangers. bangers? I remember those kids, you know, kids who would throw around like bloods, gang signs at school and stuff. And uh, you know, I wasn't gonna question them. <laughs> I don't think you really are. Punch to the face. Uh, and uh, home wasn't working out that great. You know, I moved to Vegas, spent time with my dad, but he was always working. You know, even on the weekends, it felt like. Uh, uh, my stepmom who i initially thought was really cool because she'd grown up in los angeles uh, she you know which is different than anybody i knew she smoked i thought that was cool she was really into psychology and reading self help books she was really into juicing fresh juice she was really into vitamins all things no one in my family and riggins was into you know previously i was raised on you know hamburger helper and uh, all the cookies you 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 want Um, So this was new. Uh, Unfortunately, she was also, I'm pretty sure, mentally ill. Uh, Colleen's mom was an abusive, schizophrenic, in and out of the psych ward growing up, and her dad was a drunk and probably, based on stories uh, Colleen would tell, a a pedophile as well. I mean, this is uh, when she was a teen. He once tried to proposition her for sex, like sleep with his own daughter. He he was that dude. So she did not have a good childhood. She had an abusive ex husband uh, before you know she met our family. Uh, She thought was going to kill her. Most of her social circle came from AA meetings. uh, And it turns out she never wanted kids. And resented my sister and I from the start. The start. So smart move by dad. Uh, marry a woman who does not want to be, who explicitly does not want to be around kids when you have two kids. Who's a genius? My dad. Uh, Colleen was uh, annoyed by everything I did. I didn't vacuum right. Uh, I didn't put away the dishes right. Whatever I did, I didn't do it, I didn't do it right. And every time I, I didn't do something right, she thought it was a personal attack on her because she was very paranoid. Because I believe she had, I don't know if you can have mild schizophrenia or just, I don't know. She, she had something Something, she was always reading these crazy motives into everything I did. You know, everything was a personal attack. I I, I didn't put a dish in the wrong spot because I was an absent minded 15 year old. I did it because I was sending her a strong message of fuck you, get away from our family. Like, I'm not kidding. <laughs> like, she was always like, you know, cornering me and, and uh, accusing me of craziness. And if I denied it, then I just got in more trouble. Uh, she, and she was also just really into like, uh, like, you know, new age shit at one one second And then some form of Christianity the next And if she sensed I didn't agree with whatever, you know, flavor of the month Ideology or theology she was into Then I was being disrespectful and got in trouble as well uh, She was also a bum who just stopped working Shortly after she met my dad And just, you know, just uh, hung around the house And sulked and was paranoid So fun times with her um, uh, so my goal became not to be, uh, away from home as much as possible. And that's where Chris came in. Chris lived with his mom. His mom spent every weekend with her boyfriend. So Chris and I had his place to ourselves every weekend, two pissed off social outcast teens with no parental supervision. Um, you know, his mom was happy not to be around him and my stepmom was happy to not be around me. So, so my sophomore year in high school was spent just fucking causing so much mayhem. Uh, Chris and I would steal from the seven 11 at the end of the block continually, Like just like like as a game, like they knew we stole, they would follow us around the store, (laughs) the employees, and then we would still steal stuff and run away. We would and then we would like throw stuff against the windows to harass them. Like we were just we were out of control. Uh, We'd set brush fires uh, on vacant lots around us at night and then hide nearby and watch the fire trucks come put them out. Uh, We got a hold of the anarchist cookbook, a couple pages, and we spent a lot of time trying to make bombs, trying to make car bombs, pipe bombs, uh, just blow up. Like we tried fucking blowing up cars around there. Uh, we, we tried. Luckily, we weren't good enough to actually make an explosive, but it wasn't for lack of effort. We tried very hard to make bombs. Um, we set dumpsters on fire uh, in Anchor Village, you know, and then watch people freak out when they thought like one of the buildings was on fire. We break into cars. Uh, a few times, actually broke into uh, apartments, uh, just steal stuff. Uh, broke into a local school one night, stole computers. Uh, we play catch on the side of the road, just do dickhead stuff like play catch on the side of the road with a football and throw it as hard as you can, but time it so that you'd intentionally miss and just like try to get it like in a car and like pelt somebody or try like we were just we just wanted to cause angst (laughs) like the world hated us and we hated the world and and i can't blame my stepmom for all that man uh i've always had a little darkness in me some of that is something inside of me and i I don't know what it is man even as a small kid when my buddies and i would would play he-man i wanted to be skeletor when we played gi joe i wanted to be cobra commander one of those guys i always wanted to be the bad guy i have no idea where that comes from uh, I'm sure a counselor could have fun talking to me about it. Um, but I don't do that stuff now, right? Uh, keep it in check. You keep it in check. I get my hatefulness out in my comedy here and there. And, uh, anyway, end of my sophomore year, spring of 1993, my dad decides to move back to Riggins. Uh, he still has friends in the area. He could afford to buy a little house there. So back to Idaho we go. And, uh, and it was weird being back, man. I was now, I was, I was back in school in Riggins at Sam River High School now. And I was both the new kid and the kid everyone already knew. Uh, you know, I'd gone to you know third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade there, but then I went away for a couple of years. Uh, I dressed and acted differently than my old buddies. You know, I brought back some Vegas with me. You know, I I, I was wearing again. I think uh, I think what was it? Z Cap <laughs> that kind of stuff. Um, you know, my my junior year, I I tried, I had an earring. My junior year, I, I traveled with my buddies on the weekend to Lewiston or Boise. I steal shit ship from the mall. I brought back my, my theft, my pension for theft. For Christmas in 1993, I actually literally stole all the gifts I gave everyone in the family that year. So sorry, fam. Uh, my mom got me a job at the grocery store in town, uh, which at that time was known as Paul's, previously the mercantile, something different now. Uh, I stole from work. I'd help unload freight before school on Mondays and Wednesdays with a new kid named Zach. I'd unload a box of stuff, and I'd, and I'd put what I wanted back in the box. Like, so that's so like, you know, paper towels, whatever you take out the paper towels, put the paper towels in the shelf. And then I would just like slip something I wanted into the empty box and then set the box by the dumpster and I'd go pick it up like in my lunch break, you know, and then what I usually it was like, uh, playboys, like porn mags or, uh, uh, cassettes actually, you know, this is, a, it's a little dated, I'd you know, take still a bunch of cassettes and, uh, and then I got caught. Somebody else picked up a box full of cassette tapes, found out that I did it, called my boss, uh, who also then told my mom because my mom worked there as a bookkeeper. She was the one who got me the job, but I wouldn't fess up, and they didn't have an eyewitness, so th- so I, they couldn't prove it. I couldn't get fired, but they knew I did it, and uh, and I never stole anything again, and haven't haven't since. My mom asked me if I stole those tapes, me denying it to her face, but then getting a look from her where I could tell she knew I did it, and the disappointment in her face. Ugh, uh, that that was a, that was a low point for sure. Uh, I'm glad she did that. Uh, the tapes, if you're curious, I think I stole that. Tape. I think it was Guns and Roses, Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 and Tem- Temple of the Dog. Uh, despite that low point, uh, when I quit uh, uh, the job the next year, I, I did leave my-, my old boss a parting gift. This is how much of a dickhead I was as a teenager. I didn't like the way John, the guy who uh, ran the store, I didn't like the way he accused me of stealing stuff, even though I did steal stuff. Like, he was right to look judgingly at me. but Despite that, I still thought he was an asshole, uh, so my last day at work ah, oh, this is bad I got a paper plate, uh, I drew a picture of his face on it, you know, wrote his name, I wrote, actually I wrote, "Fuck you, John," and then <laughs> and then I literally took a shit on it, like literally just shit on it. And then I hid that plate of shit of my own shit in his office where I knew he would smell it, but in a place up, up high, kind of behind some stuff where I didn't think he would find it, and I have no idea if he did find it. I was a dirty, filthy savage uh, when I was in high school. It's 1994. Uh, I switched from kind of being a bad boy to, to being somewhat of a goody two-shoes, you know, to kick off senior year, kind of. Uh, I got elected student body ugh, student body president and after running a horrific smear campaign against my opponents. Uh, I ran against Randy Wilson and Ryan Shaw, two totally decent kids. Totally decent kids. Ryan, my class, Randy, the year uh, below me. Uh, they did not deserve to have their names slandered. Uh, but that's <laughs> what but I, so I did. The theme of my uh, student body president campaign was that you shouldn't vote for Randy because Randy was fat and all he cared about was hot lunch. <laughs> and you shouldn't vote for... I know it's not funny, but I just think about it at the time. And you shouldn't vote for Ryan because he had AIDS. I wish I was kidding right now. How did the school allow that, by the way? I had posters... On the wall of don't fight. I think it was like vote for Ryan and die of AIDS. How horrific. And if you're judging me right now, please keep in mind. Well, you're right to judge me. This is 1995 or 1994, actually. And I am in high school and I'm in Riggins. All right. I know it's bad. I know now. I'm sure I knew then. I was a fucking monster. Uh, but kids thought the nonsense I wrote about them was funny. I, mean, I wrote it in some kind of jokes. Just, i just, I remember R- R- Ryan had a nice job at the gas station and he was like, that was part of his campaign. So I'm like, I was like, so what? He has a job. Gomer Pyle has a job. Like some weird old reference of a nerd having a job. Oh, I was a dick, but I, but I won. Uh, and then to my credit, once I did win, I took the job seriously. I think I felt, maybe I felt guilty of how I went. And then I organized a fundraiser for World Wildlife Fund. I started a positive action committee uh, where you could leave notes in a suggestion box in the library for how to improve the school. I'm pretty sure the PAC endured for many years after I graduated, which I thought was cool. I went to started going to church again. I was always kind of doing that off and on as a kid. Uh, I went to church for a while, mostly to impress a girl, Holly Tumelson. I was kind of dating, but uh, then she dumped me and, and church was back out. Met a Mormon girl uh, towards the end of senior year from another town down in southern Idaho at the... Uh, Yeah, the end of senior year, started going to the Mormon church to impress her. Uh, She didn't convert me, but she did take my virginity, so thank you, uh, shortly after graduation in 1995, and and I've liked Mormons ever since. Always had a soft spot for them. Uh, I was also voted a class clown in 1995, along with Shoshana Nichols, uh, and I applied to the university of Idaho because it was where my friend Kyler Wilson was going and it was affordable. I applied to the university of Hawaii cause I thought it would be fucking awesome to live in Hawaii. And I applied to Gonzaga cause some, uh, us news and world report article listed it as the best academic school in the area. And two cute girls from my class, Kim Dowdy and Jenny Beto were, were going there. So I, and I ended up picking Gonzaga, uh, because they gave me the most money, just plain and simple. I was a poor kid and they gave me the most financial aid. And uh, I started off as a computer science major because I I took an early computer programming class. I can't even believe it was offered in Riggins. Uh, Two weeks after I started taking classes at Gonzaga, I changed my major from computer science to psychology. I I remember the class that killed my um, dream of of working in the computer industry. It was a one-on-one computer class. It was Pascal programming, some dead language, uh, programming language. I was taking, and I was also taking calculus. Calculus was kicking my ass, mostly because Riggins didn't offer advanced math classes. Uh, we had a class called advanced math that I took that was a go at your own pace class that I took for two years, uh, taught by Mr. Buck Fitch, and he was a fucking horrible teacher. Dude still lives in Riggins, nice enough guy in some ways, but not a good teacher, I don't think. Uh, he just didn't give a shit about teaching the class. He sat at his desk, he read the, he read the newspaper, from, you know, the daily paper from Boise, and he tried looking up girls' skirts and down their blouses, like, like, obviously. He was not subtle about it. And, and as long as you were quiet and appeared busy... Uh, He left you alone and you got an A He was just killing time Just killing time and collecting a paycheck So uh, not really prepared for college calculus After that Where you actually had to know math To get a good grade in math Uh, And one day in my Pascal programming class This is why I didn't like the other class I couldn't stop thinking about how ridiculous it was That my professor wore a dark button down long sleeve collared shirt That he constantly rubbed against a chalkboard Like chalk would get all over his belly So much chalk like he would turn around and just have this fucking white chalk dust belly and then a black shirt. And, uh, and he didn't think he needed to brush it off. Like he would just leave the chalk there for the whole class. He also had a pocket protector. Not kidding. Like a nerdy pocket protector. Uh, pants that were pulled up way too high and, and kind of cinched too tightly with a belt. Uh, a pair of glasses straight out of Revenge of the Nerds. Uh, even, even though he looked to be in his 50s, he looked like his mom still cut his hair. He was, he was a caricature of a, of a gigantic dork. And one day, a few weeks in, I just remember leaning over and telling a classmate, just like, dude, look how much chalk is on that guy's gut, right? Like, like, like that's fucking crazy, right? And he just looked at me like, well, yeah, that's what happens when you have a large gut and you stand too close to a chalkboard. That's you, just, you would get chalk on your gut. That's logical. Like, there was no humor in it for him, and none of the other kids in the class saw any humor in it. And I just thought there's no fucking way I am going to spend the rest of my life in a cubicle working with these nerds. I'll kill myself. What an idiot I was. The tech field is way cool now. And there's so much money in it. God damn it. Right? Uh, now, to be clear, the tech field looked very different uh, years later than it did, you know, coming out of uh, Spokane in 1994, uh, Google or 1995, excuse me. Uh, Google would soon have a, a kick-ass corporate campus, you know, as with Microsoft. The tech boom would go nuts in Silicon Valley. Just a lot of money to be made, you know, living in cool places like Seattle and San Francisco. But I didn't know that. Uh, I just knew that there was a dude with a chalk gut and a bunch of people who didn't care about it, and I didn't want to be around him anymore. And so I switched to psychology uh, because I found my psych 101 class very interesting. No two kids going to college now. Who gives a shit if your class is interesting? (laughs) Think about the job potential. Uh, And there were probably uh, a bunch of cute girls in it. And, uh, yeah, actually, I know there was. There was Kate Braco. Uh, I think she was – no, wait. It was a different Kate. I can't remember. Kate Braco it was another cute girl I went to school with. Kate – there was another Kate. There was a strawberry blonde whose name also escapes me, who I can picture, and uh, a platinum blonde whose name also escapes me, another, another girls. and uh, other you girls. Know, and I was a hormone-fueled idiot, uh, picking a major partly because uh, I thought cool, cute girls were in that major. Uh, so is where I really came into my own, though. Man, I felt like I really hit my stride there. I loved college. I had a blast in college. So much fun, uh, especially after how awkward high school was. You know, I wasn't well-liked in Las Vegas at all. Uh, when I went back to Riggins, I-, I was well-liked, but I didn't feel like I had much in common with my classmates. You know, I, like, I love Riggins. But I I just never wanted to spend my life there I wanted to see more of the world Uh, And kind of like, you know And there's some cool people for sure who live in Riggins But there's also this crowd of people who just, you know Want to get drunk around a campfire And talk about the shit they did in high school 20 years earlier Which would have sucked for me Because I didn't do much in high school You know, It's not like I would have had touchdowns or prom night sex to talk about (laughs) Uh, and, it, and it would have been pretty hard to stay in Riggins, even if I wanted to. The world has changed since my dad first moved there and since my grandpa and great grandpa moved there years ago. When they were young, there was actually good jobs in Riggins. You could make a lot of money in the logging industry. My dad, grandpa, great grandpa all worked in the logging industry, all worked around this mill that was in town, all starting in the 20s, you know, and my, my grandpa and great grandpa had full careers. But then the sawmill burned down to the ground uh, somewhere around 1980, 82, in that era, and the good jobs went up in smoke with it. And Riggins, after that, became largely just kind of a, a retirement and welfare community. There is a whitewater rafting industry there, and there's some jobs, you know, seasonal jobs that well, but but there's, you know, basically a lot of people who are either retired and kind of made their money and just settled down there uh, or moved there from some other you know place just to be retired, or there's kind of people who have to live on government assistance, and then there's just a small handful of survivors who don't have to do that. There's just not many people actually making money around there. You have to really kind of work hard to carve a life out for yourself there. You know, Usually by you know, taking work out of town, like uh, seasonally in Alaska, a lot of people do that, like on a salmon or king crab boat or fighting forest fires uh, around the west, working with smoke jumpers, that kind of, like, like blue-collar outdoorsman type of shit that sounds hard. No, thank you. Uh, Gonzaga was the first time. Uh, I was surrounded by a lot of people as curious as I was about the world. Man, it really started to shape you know, who I, who I am now. Uh, for the first time in my life, I was, I was having late-night discussions about philosophy, gender equality, race equality, psychology, music, politics, culture. My mind was on fucking fire. I was getting drunk and stoned having these conversations, so even better. I joined the GU Progressives, went on of various protests around town. I don't even remember what I protested, but I, I remember being into it. I felt, I felt alive in a way I never did back in Riggins. Uh, and Riggins, you know, no one outside of my family and a few teachers, you know, just really thought it was cool to be an academic, you know, and, and, and at least not outwardly. And while my family was proud of me, you know, I was the first person in my extended family to ever go to college, and they just weren't interested in, you know, the musings of Immanuel Kant or, you know, what we learned about, you know, a humanity from studies done by Stanley Milgram in the 60s. You know, before Gonzaga, I, I just didn't realize how alone I had felt for several years, you know. I could really be myself in Gonzaga. I could, I could dye my hair, pierce my ears, weird, uh, wear weird thrift store clothes I was into at the time. You know, I was very grunge, uh, not be constantly mocked for it. You know, it was, I was, it was cool to be different. You know, it was not cool to be different in Riggins. Uh, college was the fucking best, man. Uh, I was dating a Mormon girl when I got to Gonzaga, and I remember doing all this uh, research about some questionable moments in the history of Mormon theology, and uh, and she didn't care. And uh, she just wanted to be a Mormon because her family was, was also Mormon. And now I think, you know, whatever, that, that's fine. But, it, but it, it just didn't work for me, you know, because I wasn't that way. I've always been a questioner, or questioner, and, uh, and I really became one big time in college. I needed to be with someone who, who thought out their belief system and really was able to be critical of it. And if you still accept it, fine, but at least be able to question it, and she just wasn't, you know, one of those people. You know, being overly inquisitive did not work well in Riggins. You know, when I was, a, when I was in junior high back in Riggins, I was permanently banned from uh, from a local Christian youth group, my friends went to for literally asking too many questions. I would ask Mrs. Cook, you know, stuff like, "But how can people who've never been introduced to Christ, people in some remote jungle, how can how can they not go to heaven when they've never had a chance at salvation?" And she would get flustered, and she would just think I was just being disruptive. That I, I actually did want an answer, but she didn't have one for me. And her solution was just to like, you know, say I was disruptive and toss me out of youth group. And then she made a new rule: get thrown out three times and you're banned forever. And then three meetings later, I was banned forever. Side note that same lady was caught up in an embarrassing scandal about fifteen years later when her husband, my old computer science teacher, Mr. John Cook, used some type of biblical scripture uh bullshit interpretation uh and this is not a knock against Christianity this is a knock against him uh he 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 just tweaked it to justify uh having a second wife yeah, so he, so he took a second wife and then he got busted for polygamy so uh so maybe maybe you should kind of you know question things and come up with your own. <laughs> You know, be, be Christian, you know, but 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 uh, be able to talk about some stuff. At Gonzaga, uh, um, I damn near became Catholic there. I liked the way the Jesuits studied the Bible. I respected the, the fact that their faith was grounded in a lot of intellectualism, and, and I still respect that. And I know there's a lot of Protestants uh, who are intellectual as well. Um, but yeah, man, so I, uh, so I found a, you know, new kind of respect for, for religion there, even though I didn't become uh, Catholic. And at Gonzaga, I had a reputation amongst my, my new friends for being funny, and when—excuse uh, <clears throat> me. Well, like Gonzaga, uh, I watched a show that would change my life forever and that relates directly to leading to getting into stand-up, which then leads to time suck. I, it was a show called Waiting for FM, which if I will recall correctly stood for Waiting for Frank Miller. Nobody really cared what the FM stood for. Uh, but it was, what they did care about is it was an annual sketch comedy show at Gonzaga. That is no longer there. The Jesuits uh, finally pulled the plug on it because it was too irreverent, and it replicated the structure of Saturday Night Live. It had a host, a musical guest, a bunch of sketches, lasted about 90 minutes, and and it would just go on for one run a year. There'd be a run of three shows, one weekend, uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, and it was a huge hit on campus. It was well done. All the sketches were related to campus life uh, and life in Spokane, Washington, and it was just very irreverent, especially for a Catholic university. Sketches made fun of students, done around school, made fun of dorm life, sports teams, professors, Jesuit priests themselves, surrounding neighborhood, you know, where there was a fair amount of crime. And, and I went freshman year, and I laughed my ass off. Like, I thought it was so fucking well done. And it was just so cool to have, like, basically, like, an episode of Saturday Night Live catered to your specific campus life. So inside, so beautifully inside, though, It was our own little, like, club. And, and I remember they mocked this one self-righteous kid, this one, uh, like, kid very involved in, like, student body p- politics type stuff. Jason something was his name. So ruthlessly, he took a couple weeks off school to recover. He had some kind of breakdown. Cruel, but if you saw this kid, you wouldn't have a problem with it. And then, so the next year, fall of 1996, uh, I heard they were having auditions. My, and my buddy, Paul Runnels, my best bud, uh, encouraged me to try out. So I did. Uh, just like an SN- SNL ad- audition where you have to bring, you know, the three characters and perform them. Uh, that's what we did for Waiting on FM. So I, I remember one character I did with this hyper-masculine, violent member of the baseball team. Uh, Just a parody of aggro baseball players at the school. because Man, our baseball team was the fucking worst. People were always getting beat up at the baseball house. They were just like... We didn't have a a frat. We didn't have a frat row. We didn't have no Greek system. But they were like the closest thing to a bad stereotype of like an angry frat guy. Um, I also did an impression of this very uh, odd uh, European student we called Toolboy. Because he always wore this tool belt uh, featuring a a large flashlight, some first aid supplies, a bunch of other shit. And he would just patrol campus looking for someone who needed help that he could hopefully help with his tools. I shit you not. So weird. Uh, and so we were fascinated with him on campus. It was like, ah, oh, that's tool boy, just this weird dude walking around with this giant fucking tool belt at all times. Like, because what was weird is like no one. He wasn't. It wasn't his job. He wasn't. He didn't work for the school. He wasn't like on security. No one. You know. No one even asked him. No one even wanted him to do this. He just did it. And uh, and I can't remember the third character. And uh, and I made it into the play. And not to toot my own horn, but I was a star of the own show, of the show. Uh, I went from you know some kid from Riggins who knew a few kids on campus, mostly known for being the only kid at school with both ears multiple uh, pierced, a different hair color all the time, to being known as the funny guy. Right, girls suddenly noticed me who didn't know me before. I was going to parties I wasn't going to before, getting hit on differently than before. Know, who doesn't love that? Uh, it made me feel good. So I loved being funny. Uh, the following fall, the fall of 1997, I was able to get enough student loans, and my my grandparents had set up a little bit of a couple thousand dollars for me. Um, They had an account since I was a little kid, and I was able to use all that and take a a semester abroad. Uh, Studied in London for a full semester, lived with the London family uh, in Acton Town, right off the Piccadilly Line, the underground, the London subway, and, uh, you know, Mind the Gap, all that. And this changed me again, man. Every weekend, we're, we're taking excursions around England, visiting Wales, Stonehenge, Cliffs of Dover, Brighton, Portsmouth, watching plays in the West End, I'd never been east of the Mississippi before, and now I'm living with a family in Europe, and and I realized that the universe didn't begin and end with the United States. I realized that while the United States is awesome, so is Britain, so is France, so is Switzerland, Italy, Belgium, Holland, so on. I dated a girl from Germany, some German law student who had never been to America. It was interesting to hear her take on the world. Uh, In Europe, I I learned that despite what country we're born in, we're, we're all just fucking people suffering from the human condition. We're all just looking for love, acceptance, you know? We all still want to live a happy life, whatever that looks like, based on your own temperament and goals, you know? The notion that people from this, this country are terrible and that people from this country are great is so fucking simplistic and childish. I, I hate it when people get into a country like they get into a sports team, you know, like, just like they're a weird, mindless cheerleader. You know, USA! I mean, that's look, I love USA, but, like, there's a certain segment of the population that if you ask them, well, what do you love about it? They would have fucking nothing. Because it, uh, it's great! How is it great? Because it's free. It's free. But how? What does that mean to you? It's freedom. I'm <laughs> you know, just like, it is great. I think the U.S. is the best country in the world. But like, you know, it's part of the part of the reason I uh, I think that too is actually even doing these time sucks. You know, like Teddy Roosevelt and JFK and all that kind of stuff. But but I like like learning why. I like being able to have discussions about why it's great. And and also it can be great. But so, but I also like to realize that many other countries can be great as well. And, uh, and this was just kind of the first time, you know, that I encountered, that. I guess just growing up, you know, I was just always told that we were the fucking best and that was it. And because I was told that so much, I just expected when I got to Europe to think things to be kind of shitty in a way, you know, like things to be okay, but not as good as America. No, man, we're just, uh, we're all just, we're all just, uh, human beings. And I also loved England cause, uh, you could get into bars and clubs without being 21. So that was nice. Uh, when you're 1920 or I think I was 20, um, you could buy two liter bottles, of hard cider at the grocery store, some Strongbow's. Uh, for a couple bucks, a couple pounds I got so fucked up in England, blackout drunk almost every weekend uh, My host family thought I was insane uh, I may be Spring of 98, I'm back in Spokane, back in the States And uh, and I do another season of Waiting on FM It goes even better, I really love it But but now, uh, but I don't think of it as something I, I'd like for a career uh, And actually soon after that I, I give up on comedy for a little bit Because I become, this is so douchey I become the serious guitar guy, you guys Alright? I started singing sappy grunge-type love songs that I've written myself. I've arranged myself at the coffee shop on campus. I I swear to God, I'm that guy. I I formed a band with some friends called Who's Lewis, uh, which sounds a lot like Huey Lewis. I do realize that. Uh, We didn't really think about that. Uh, We did not sound like Huey Lewis. We sounded more like the Toadies or Everclear. Uh, We played a lot of Toadies covers, actually, and Everclear covers. Uh, We did did our own songs as well. We played parties. Uh, I liked the attention I got from girls for being in a band even more than comedy. Uh, I met my first wife at a a rehearsal for the band. Uh, I decided not to do waiting on FM my senior year because I was fucking focused on my music, okay, you guys? And I was suddenly a meathead. Uh, I got way into lifting weights. (laughs) I was more interested in eating a shit ton of beef and taking a lot of creatine, kicking up my bench press, than I was in being funny. Uh, I'm also working at Child Protective Services senior year in uh, uh, late 98, early '99. Uh, That was some heavy stuff, man, Uh, you know, having to, like, go to people's homes and and take kids from their families because the families were all fucked up on drugs or something. Wow, that was, ah, that was heavy. Uh, I graduated with a bachelor's in psychology in the spring of 99. I grabbed a little apartment near campus, got a job at the Crisis Residential Treatment Center, the CRC, an inpatient counseling center for runaway teens and teens stuck in the social work system. I think it's still open today uh, with five-day and 14-day beds. Basically, like if a social worker took a kid out of a parent's home, but they didn't have a foster home ready to put them in, or they took them out of one foster home and didn't have another ready or they didn't have a group home ready, they could put them in like a two-week bed, like a 14-day bed. They'd stay with us for two weeks, and you know we just make sure they didn't do anything horrible or try to. Uh, or if a kid ran away and the police got them, the police would bring them to the CRC for a five-day bed, and they'd, and they'd have to stay there for five nights, and the parents would co- have to come in for like, I believe it was like three sessions of counseling before the kid uh, went back into the home and uh and as a counselor you're just kind of supposed to address you know you'd have like these one hour counseling sessions with the family and the kid you know address like why the kid ran away uh try to solve as many you know family problems as you could in 5 days to reduce the likelihood the kid would run away again you have like an intake session too where you talk to them about why they ran away in the first place you know solo before you met with the family and, and a few months in i just realized social work was and counseling was not the career for me the pay was terrible after taxes i was making 1100 a month i could barely pay my student loans uh, I, I was sending kids, and it, and it just didn't feel like I was accomplishing anything. I was sending kids back into the homes of people who weren't abusive enough to have their kids taken away from them, but were also like super shitty parents. I remember one mom who I couldn't get to understand why it wasn't okay to call her daughter a slut. You know, I would tell her that was a horrible word uh, for a mom to call a daughter that was emotionally abusive and all that. And she would say stuff like, well, if she doesn't want to be a slut, then she shouldn't act like a slut. You know, so then she I was like, okay, you're right. That's sound logic. Okay, now I get it. What size shirt do you wear? I need to order your mom of the year sweater right now. Uh, Well, the heavy work wore on me. It made me feel depressed, man. And I was reading all these case files between CPS and CRC. I was reading all these fucking case files about, you know, this person had been sodomized by a sibling or this person molested by their dad or raped by a neighbor. It just started to make me feel like fucking sexual predators were everywhere. Like, that everywhere someone was being victimized. And so I would, like, be out at the mall or in public, and I'm just like, oh, I wonder what that guy's doing. Oh, I wonder what that piece of shit's doing. And I just, ah, uh, it was just putting me in a real dark mindset all of the time. And uh, and I was also kind of afraid of the kids themselves, too, because that was another weird angle of it. Like, the kids, you know, that you're trying to help, well, a, lot, a lot of them, they would manipulate you into doing stuff like looking the other way. Like, one, this one kid did that, like, you know, tricked me into looking over here, and then he, he stole a bunch of shit out of the medicine cabinet, and I almost got fired for that. Oh, uh, you know, and then, uh, uh, there was these other kids referred to as alligators, uh, they would be called, uh, and these were kids who got off on making allegations, uh, about, st- you know, just anybody, but including staff members, like, like sexual allegations, you know, you end up in a room alone with one of those kids and they would, you know, if they tell their social worker or anybody that you molested them, doesn't matter, uh, if the police don't even press charges because there's no merit to their accusation, the, the stigma of the accusation alone just fucking ends your career before it starts. So, you know, so I'm always nervous about like making sure I'm with another staff member all the time. It was very stressful. And so six months in, uh, I dropped down to part-time. I started trying to find something else to do. Uh, I took another part-time job working as a personal trainer at 24 hour fitness. I was still really into lifting weights. I still lift weights today. I still like it. Uh, I did that. I did pretty well at it for about six months. Uh, selling the, you know, the most training packages at my gym, you know, the work just wasn't what I thought it was though. Most, most of my clients had no interest in working hard, changing their bodies. They just wanted someone to talk to while they worked out. You know, had the money to afford that. We, we call ourselves rent-a-friends as trainers. I was basically just like a cheerleader for lonely old women. Just come on, come on, Ruth, you you got this, you got this. Ten more, ten more, keep it going, doing doing great. Come on, Cheryl, three more, three more good ones, make it count. Let's let's go, Dorothy. Two more minutes on that treadmill. You you got this. And I'd listen to them complain about not losing weight, even though they were eating more than they were eating before they started working out with me. You know, I'm a fucking trainer, lady, I'm not a weight loss wizard. Ninety five percent of my clients, they didn't want to put in hard work. They just wanted the pounds magically to fall off. You know, because they showed up twice a week at a gym. Uh, also, in 1999, I, I got engaged to my first wife. It was crazy. Uh, I loved her, uh, but I knew I wasn't ready to be married. I was 21 years old. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I guess I was 22 years old. Uh, we both were, but I, but I also knew she would leave me if we didn't get engaged soon. Uh, Max's wife, Heather, was always very clear about uh, the relationship goals, you know. Uh, and because I didn't live in Seattle, LA, San Francisco, Boston, or some city with a with a strong dating scene, I guess I actually had this thought that if I didn't Get uh, engaged to her? Like who would I find? Who, who would I possibly find at 22? I just, I just, it just felt like everyone was going to be married. Like all of my friends were getting married. I just felt like there would be no single people out there, which is idiotic. I know. Uh, little did I know at the time that I could have moved to LA and lived like I was 22 until I was 65. Oh well. Oh well. Heather and I did have some good times uh, uh, for sure, and we got two great kids out of the deal. So you know, it was a win. So now it's the year 2000. I'm out of, a year out of college. Uh, I don't like my part-time work as a residential treatment center staff member. Uh, by this time, I'm covering just, you know, occasional shifts at various places. Morningstar Boys Ranch, Riley House, Springtide. Uh, I don't like working the rest of my time as a trainer. Uh, I'm thinking to go back to school. Thinking about a program at Eastern Washington University where you get a master's in teaching in one year. Thought about getting a degree in graphic design at Spokane Falls, community college. I was all over the place. And then my ex-wife heard about an open mic at a comedy club. Yeah, now we're finally getting to the comedy stuff. I was sure about an open mic at a comedy club in Spokane Washington I didn't even know there was a comedy club in town I didn't know there was an open mic I didn't know what an open mic was I had never considered a career in stand-up. I wasn't a big uh fan of stand-up before I got into it I didn't watch it you know I'd watched Saturday night live uh you know for a few years as a kid I was into that I remember getting like uh, an Andrew Dice clay tape as a kid you know some blank tape that it was recorded on you know I thought it was cool because he cussed a lot <laughs> I remember I wore out a tape of Eddie Murphy's Delirious when I was in high school, you know, just roll, roll Charlie around, roll, roll Charlie around, he'll he be all right, he'll be all right, that's, that's a fire, you know, I remember all those lines, it's just, it's just, goody goo goo, you know, all those classic Eddie Murphy bits, but I never thought like, when I listened to it, like yeah, that's what I want to do, I never thought like, yeah, I want to be in the night show, I just, Fucking didn't think about it. Uh, but Heather had seen me for the first time perform on Waiting on uh, Waiting for FM months before we even met and she thought I might be good at it. So I bought a notebook, voice recorder, worked out seven minutes worth of ideas over a few weeks, watched a few guys do stand-up on Comedy Central. Dane Cook was one of them. Man, he was an early inspiration. I know it's fucking cool to shit on him, but I, I still think his early stuff was very, very funny. And, uh, and, and a few weeks later, you know, I showed up with uh, Heather and a, and a bunch of old college buddies, and I did a set at Laughs Comedy Club, uh, the Sunday open mic. It was August 3rd, 2000. It was this little tiny comedy club inside a sports bar called The Season Ticket near, in the parking lot of a thrift store called Value Village in Spokane, near the Spokane Arena. I set about 150 people, and basically, I just did sketch comedy characters by myself. Uh, I had props. I had a mullet wig. It was ridiculous, and it was terrible, and it was fun. Uh, I have it recorded somewhere and maybe someday I will find it and post it on YouTube. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I loved it. I, I didn't do an amazing job, but I, but I did better than actually than most of the other amateurs that night, because at least I had bits. I had a little bit of stage experience, you know, uh, I, I was trying to accomplish something up there as opposed to a lot of the other amateurs who would just spend seven minutes talking to the audience. Like, what do you guys want to talk about? And, uh, you know, and there were some other people there who, who tried, but just, you know, not comedy not for everybody. They just didn't have it in them. So I went back the next week, still no career ambition at this point. And the second time I did it, the club booker, uh, Mr. Nick Tyson, uh, the man who got me into doing stand up, he was there. He liked what I was doing. He invited me to do a five minute set the following weekend during a regular weekend show. My first real audience expecting to see professional comedy. And it went okay. Uh, not, not amazing, not terrible, but I made me want to do it again. Uh, I got married on September third, 2000. After our honeymoon in London, I go right back into being really into stand-up. I was ridiculous early on, man. I remember I did one uh, 10-minute set in a full-body cat suit, Uh, like fucking the head, like everything. I just had gloves, like cat paws, and just uh, did 10 minutes of random stand-up never addressing the fact that I was dressed as a cat. Uh, I wasn't good at stand-up early on, but I, but I uh, you know, I I was fearless, and that made me okay at it. I experimented with songs on stage. I played guitar, and I, and I played a song with um, called Spokane Man, my second year performing and waiting on FM, and it went over well with the students. So I played that, went over pretty well with the Spokane crowd. I wrote some new songs, songs called Corporate Executive, He-Man Loved Barbie, a little bit lesbian, I uh, had, an, had an acoustic electric uh, seagull guitar. A few months in, I got my first road gig for comics listening who who think I must have been some prodigy to work the road just a few months in. I wasn't. Just a case of right place, right time. Spokane and the surrounding area is pretty geographically isolated, and most of the comedy rooms in the area couldn't afford to pay opening acts enough to make it worth their while to travel there. So if you weren't terrible, if you had a reliable car, which I did, and were willing to drive headliners around, you know, you, you could get some opening work. And my first opening gig was at a hotel bar at the Red Lion Hotel in uh, Tri-Cities, Washington. One show Friday, one show Saturday— you know this is this is late 2000, uh, opening up for a comic out of Denver who still works. A guy named Brian Kellen. He was actually on Last Comic Standing in 2015, and uh, he's been on, like Lopez, George Lopez show when that was on. And and I did 30 minutes in front of him. My first 30 30-minute set to fucking dead silence. My first road set was the worst. Like they hated me so much. I mean, I'm talking nothing. I'm sweating up there. Just got that ass sweat, that 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 anxiety sweat. Just dying a death. But I knew I was supposed to do thirty minutes, so I did the whole time. <laughs> I, and, I, and now I, I leave the stage thinking that maybe the crowd just sucked, right? Whatever, man, they're a terrible crowd. Well, then Brian goes up and murders for an hour, just murders. So they wanted comedy; they just didn't want they just didn't want me. Um, so after the show, I'm too dumb to realize I should hide now, and I'm ha- I'm standing by the door next to Brian, thanking people for coming like an idiot. No one will even make eye contact with me. It was that bad. And then this old man—I'll never forget this—he walks up to Brian just gushing oh just so much it's like man you were funny wow what a great show you're gonna you are gonna be famous that was fantastic really good stuff my wife and i would love to buy you a drink and then he he, and then he noticed me standing next to brian and i swear to god he says he goes and you and then he points at brian he just kind of goes ah you should do what he does not kidding like you should be funny like that guy and for some reason, I did not quit uh, after that. No, I, I took every shitty gig that came my way. I started doing triple runs, notoriously tough gigs, and dive bars and hotel lounges across Montana, Idaho, Washington, Oregon, places like the Eight Ball Bar and Great Falls, Mon- uh, Great Falls Montana, just fucking shitholes. Uh, you know, Northern Nevada, Elko, and these places, Wyoming. Uh, you know, often, off these gigs had long treacherous drives to get to each one. Uh, the, it was called triple run cause the booker was named with David Tribble and they were just infamous runs. There might be like 800 miles in between gigs. I am not kidding. Like it was insane. You'd have to like, you know, do your show, get to bed early, get up at five in the morning, drive all goddamn day to make it to the next shitty show. And, and, you're, and I'm doing that in a little Hyundai Elantra with no snow tires driving over the winter over fucking mountain passes and blizzards. Uh, crazy. I remember sliding on the road, you know, here and there, because I got to make it to the gig, bombing all the time. But I'm dependable, and I and and I, and I guess you know, very few other people are willing to do these drives, uh, for hundred bucks a night, and you know, so I so I keep getting work. And then in October of 2001, I did almost quit before I really got going in stand up. Uh, I did a three week uh three week run of gigs. It was a weekend in Albuquerque, followed by a weekend in Tucson, followed by a weekend in Grand Forks, North Dakota. I took a Greyhound bus to each city. Took about 24 hours to make it from Spokane, Washington to Albuquerque to host shows at Laughs Comedy Club for a psychotic club owner named Russ Revis. This weird dude who uh talked like a gangster but also said dude this dude, what the fuck? You think you fucking fucking own the place, you fucking MC. Fucking MC wanna be feature, acting, you think you're fucking hot shit. I mean, you ain't shit. He just constantly insulted you. Uh, he was the kind of guy he paid you while having a, while he had a gun on the desk. But like like for intimidation on purpose. Uh, I slept on a couch for the weekend. Listened to the insane ramblings of this drunken career metal act. It was Jay something, maybe Jay Webb or something. He wouldn't leave me alone. Uh, you know, but I had I had to wait for him to go to his room so I could fall asleep at like three or four in the morning. So I have to I have that weekend. Uh, you know, I don't do that well on stage. All week I, I take a Greyhound bus to Tucson to work another club called Laughs. All these clubs called Laughs. Sleep on another couch for the week. Then I take an insane, almost forty-eight-hour Greyhound trip across America to Grand Forks, North Dakota, from Tucson to Grand Forks, and and somehow they lose my fucking luggage, which I didn't even know was possible on bus. Uh, we transferred buses in Omaha. They didn't transfer my luggage correctly, so I show up during a goddamn snowstorm. Uh, I'm the middle act now, not the host. It doesn't matter. You know the club is weeks from closing. I find out no one's in the audience. No one cares. I'm wearing clothes I've been wearing on a bus for two days. The only place to eat near my shitty hotel that had been partially condemned previously to me getting there since a huge flood hit the area and I had mold issues. So I'm staying at fucking the Mold Hotel. It was actually called the Westward Ho. Uh, there's this Chinese buffet across the street. The only place to eat where I get food poisoning. Also next to the hotel is this beet, pro- the sugar beet processing plants that, that smelled so bad, the, the fumes coming out of it, that I would dry heave in the parking lot. So this is my life right now. Uh, I, get food, yeah, I get food poisoning at the fucking Chinese buffet, so that night I'm staying in a shitty motel where it smells like fucking death from the beet plant, literally shitting out nasty Chinese food, wearing clothes I'd put on in Tucson a couple days before, after having bombed in front of ten people at a bar where no one cared about the show. Oh my god, my luggage show's up the next day. The club owner won't give me a ride to the Greyhound station because he's a dickhead. Uh, Chris Lindgren was his name. (laughs) I'm too embarrassed to get a cab because I'm only making a a gross total of $900 for the entire three week, three week road trip. This is before travel expenses. I I walk through the snow without a coat about two miles to the bus station where I grab my luggage. I'm dragging it back through the fucking snow. Some dude I think takes pity on me, picks me up, gives me a ride back to the hotel. When I get there, he's like, Hey man, this wasn't for free. He wants money for helping me out. I give him 10 bucks. I hate everybody. I go to my room. I feel moderately suicidal. What the fuck am I doing with my life? Why am I staying in this shitty motel? Why am I taking these Greyhound trips? And if I hadn't been invited previous to that to perform in the Seattle comedy competition a few weeks later, this big annual month-long comedy competition that's been going on every fall in Seattle for over 30 years, competition that Mitch Hedberg had won at one point, I would have quit. I would have quit after that week. I'm pretty sure of that. But then I I enter the contest, and for the first time, I'm performing in front of packed crowds around Seattle, smart crowds, crowds who knew comedy, crowds who weren't just at a bar that happened to have comedy that night in addition to the drink special they came there for, real comedy club crowds. I was the least experienced comic in the competition that year, uh, but but in the first week, in order to move on, you had to place in the top five uh, out of your group of 15 comics. You're in a group of 15 comics, you're all doing like five minutes a night, three judges are watching the show, they're grading you on uh, performance, uh, you know, originality, timing, etc. I place fourth overall after six shows and I make it to the semifinals where you face the, the five winners of the other round of 15 from the opening rounds. And so then 10 comics who have each moved on, you know, uh, from their rounds, go head to head and you do 10 minutes each. And then the top five of those 10 comics move on. And I do move on from that. I think I got fifth. I barely move on. And then I'm in the finals. We each get 20 minutes, and I and I do great actually. And now we're performing in theaters. First time I'm ever in theaters, and it just felt amazing. And I end up almost win- I get second place. I don't almost win. I get second place. Dwight Slade uh, won in a landslide, but I got second. And and I got second to a guy who had been doing comedy for like 20 years. You know, he started off with Bill Hicks, and and, uh, and it was just a huge confidence booster. It was fucking awesome. It made all the bullshit with Grand Forks and the Greyhound worth it. And after that, I just knew that you know, uh, in some form, man, stand up was my destiny. And in, uh, in the finals, one of the judges was this kick-ass veteran in Seattle comic named David Crow, who wanted to try and do a two-man sketch show, uh, like sketch, music, stand-up. And so he started taking me with him to these clubs in the Midwest, clubs like Crackers in Indianapolis. I would go on first, do a little stand-up. He would do more stand-up, and then we'd close it out with a few sketches and some songs. Uh, he would play the bass. I would play uh, guitar. We, our, our duo was called Cobb Dog, which is Crow on bass <laughs> Dan on guitar. Uh, it was fun, you know, but it didn't work out well. Enough in the clubs, money-wise and everything, to keep doing it. And we stopped after about a year. But it got me into some new clubs. And one of these new clubs in uh, this Crackers, the booker, uh, manager Ruth Ann, she recommends me to a couple other club bookers. A uh, dude in Florida named Gary Menke, uh, the Menker who booked Orlando, Tampa and Miami, a guy in Columbus, Ohio named Dave Stroop, who booked acts in Columbus, funny bone all over the Midwest. And suddenly by 2004, I'm a working club comic. I'm working like good rooms, you know, not making a lot of money, only about 500 a week before expenses, but I'm working with comics like Daniel Tosh, David tell, I'm seeing how they work, which was great for somebody not living in LA or New York. who doesn't get to see that, you know? And so uh, I'm getting good stage time. And, uh, You know, and my routine on the road became the same routine I have today, where I go to Starbucks, you know, work on comedy all day, and then you know, try to get a little better, throwing out stuff on stage at night. And then, sometime in 2005, Dave Stroop from Columbus he recommends me to an LA comedy manager named John McDonald, who was the same manager as Ron White at the time. He was looking for some new acts. I'm 28 now, uh, not as young as he was hoping for. Uh, He wanted some young, but uh, John flies up anyway after seeing a tape of me to Seattle to watch me do a live show at this club called Giggles in the University District. Uh, he likes it, tells me he wants to manage me. It was awesome. He does want me to lose the guitar. He thinks I'm better at stand-up than I am as a comedic singer-songwriter. And I think he was right, looking back. you know, I do have two early self-recorded albums featuring comedy songs. I have an album called Small Town Superstar from about 2002 and another one called Lower Your Goals from 2004 that I will never release <laughs> again. Uh, maybe someday I'll put them on YouTube so more people can find them. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm a little, a little proud of them, also a little embarrassed of them. Uh, the comedy uh the company he works for John works for also manages Larry the cable guy uh yeah and I said Ron white and and I started opening up for those guys Ron's crowds did like me a lot better than Larry's but it was still fun working for Larry uh it was just a cool it was just cool to work to work in like such huge venues you know I did a show in Reno in front of him in front of 14, thousand people now the crowds you know, they didn't care for me as much, but it still felt, uh, great just to see what comedy could be, you know, how many people could show up for it. Following year, I get an audition to perform at the new faces showcase in Montreal comedy festival, uh, and, uh, the just for laughs comedy festival. I get in It's prestigious comedy festival and now I'm, you know, seeing guys like Greg Giraldo and all my comedy heroes, you know, floating around and, uh, and there, I, I do some shows. They go pretty well. I'm seen by the, the guy who booked the Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson. I'm seen by some of the people who booked a Comedy Central show called Live at Gotham. I get sets on both, my first national TV sets. I bomb on Ferguson. Oh, well. But I do really well in Comedy Central. Uh, random kind of fact about that, John Mulaney uh, was on the same Comedy Central uh, showcase that I was, there, or the same you know taping of Live at Gotham. We did our first Comedy Central sets together. He's, uh, he's done very well for himself. Uh, my son Kyler is born in two thousand six. Two thousand six was a good year, man. I'm a stay at home dad. When I'm not on the road, love and life. Uh, Comedy, Comedy Central likes me well enough to invite me to submit thirty minutes of material uh, the next year for a Comedy Central Presents. I do, and I get it and uh, this is 2007 now, and, and I also get a taste of the bad part of the business in 2007. I auditioned for Last Comic Standing. It was my third, actually, audition. First two times, I didn't make it past the first round, but then there was, like, these secret auditions where if you got invited by them, you didn't have to wait in line, and you knew your chances of moving on were better. Well, I get an invite, and and I move on. I get a red card. They give me a red card and tell me I'm moving on to the semifinals out of Minneapolis. To tell my family. Everybody's excited for me. The show is at, at its peak of popularity at this point. I'm thinking this could be a big career move for me. And then I get a call a couple days before I'm supposed to fly to LA, telling me that I've been uninvited. Uh, they tell me that they actually passed 35 people total to the semifinals, but only take 30 of them. Fuck, that sucked, man. Big letdown, embarrassing in front of my family. Uh, the next, uh, the next year, last comic standing producers tell uh, tell my manager they'd like to have me come out again. They feel bad about the previous year. Tell me they will definitely not screw me over again. I go back to Minneapolis. They move me on again, get another red card. Tell me I'm in the semifinals. Uh, tell me that, oh, so sorry about last year. And then 48 hours uh, before, be, uh, or I don't know, not 48 hours, uh, about four or five days before I'm supposed to go to the semifinals in Vegas, they tell me I'm out again. I get invited again. <laughs> and then 48 hours uh, before, then they invite me back in. It was the fucking weirdest thing. And, uh, and that was the year that Eliza Schlesinger won it. Uh, and I had a good set, the semis. I got a partial standing. No, I would say definitely a top five set. You know, I'm pretty honest when I bomb, also honest when I do well, but I'm not picked for the top 10. Uh, comics who did bomb horrifically are picked And that was when I realized that reality shows are not real And that being funny does not always matter You know, when it comes to career advancement in stand-up The producers have other agendas You know, they could see this person being a host of a show They could see this person in a sitcom They don't actually care about your stand-up a lot of the times So, you know, it was a little eye-opener And I'm not even bitter about that now It just is what it is, man uh, And, you know, and frankly, my artistic heroes have, have never, you know, necessarily been the most popular artists So, whatever So, uh, I keep going And things aren't too bad at all, man. I I taped my Comedy Central Presents in 2008, still my favorite set of my comedy career as far as just kind of what it meant to me at the time. You know, I was this kid from Riggins, and now I felt like a real comic man, taping a 30-minute special where I did a great job uh, in this theater, the Hudson Theater, just off Times Square. It just felt really fucking cool. Uh, And it led to a bunch of college work. I do hundreds of campus shows between 2008 and 2012 through an organization called NACA, the National Association of Campus Activities. My daughter Monroe is born in 2008. And, uh, you know, I'm hoping to be living with the family in L.A. by 2009 or 10. That's what we're planning on. Life is very good. I make a new career goal of wanting uh, you know, to do a one-hour special and then just do more specials, man. Hoping i can, hoping I can do theaters. It would be so great. And, uh, you know, and I, I've kind of come to a new appreciation for the art form after doing it, for, doing it for a while. And George Carlin has become my favorite comic of all time, the man who just kept getting better as he got older, the man who just kept working on his craft, kept cranking out specials. Well, uh, my wife uh, Heather and I had been talking about moving to LA for years, you know, uh, previous to this. Before we had kids, actually, I told her I would know, I had no intention of staying in Spokane, and she agreed. That was kind of our deal early in the marriage was, you know, uh, she really wanted to have kids, okay, that's fine, but I really want to move, okay, that's fine. And uh, but then she started getting promotions at work, and she started kind of dragging her feet on the move. And then she said, but then she said, once I made X amount of money each month, she she would feel comfortable taking a break from her career, and uh, we could move to LA, and I could tour there while she, you know, stayed home with the kids. And then in 2009, I hit the goal that we had set. Very excited. I also get word. I get a one-hour special from Comedy Center, my main career goal. Fuck yeah. Uh, I felt like all those days spent on the road, being away from friends and family, was all about to pay off. And then in 2009, about six months before I taped my one-hour special, uh, which was my second proper album, Crazy with a Capital F, uh, Revenge is Near. My first album had a lot of this stuff from the half-hour special. Uh, My wife told me uh, that she'd met someone at work and that we were done. So that's fucking sucked. And then because of the 2008 real estate crash, uh, I was also upside down in my mortgage uh, and this house that I got in the divorce and uh, and fucked over kind of financially. So 2009 was a terrible year. I felt like everything I had worked for, you know, had just been pulled out from under me. You know, it was just it was devastating. You know, I felt like I was you know doing things the right way. And, uh, you know, i been putting in all this time and working really hard and paying these dues. And now it was paying off. I got my one hour special. And then suddenly it felt like it just didn't matter because I was I was losing my family. So so Heather and I agreed to joint custody. I moved to L.A. in early 2010, and it was bittersweet, man. I had daydreamed about living in L.A. with my kids for years now, able to spend more time with my kids in L.A., and now I'm just fucking down there without them, you know. Uh, they, they come down a week, uh, a month to be with me in, in the custody arrangement, but, you know, obviously not the same. Uh, I did meet a nice girl named Kristen uh Columbus shortly after the divorce. Uh, she moved with me to L.A., and I went to a dark place for a couple of years. Man, I drank too much, uh, never when I had the kids, which was, you know, again, the one week a month. But uh, but a lot when they were gone. You know, I did a I did a sit on the night show with Conan. I was invited back. Then he <laughs> then he lost the show to Jay Leno, so I, there goes my in. Uh, then on Memorial Day weekend in 2010, uh, the special comes out, Crazy with a Capital F, and it felt like no one cared. Oh, I was the worst time for it to come. It came out like Saturday at midnight on Memorial Day weekend. Like, they just buried it. Uh, the next club uh, I was at after it debuted, Dr. Grins in Grand Rapids, Michigan, still only half full. Every club after that, the rest of the year, same way. And I got really depressed, man. I spiraled down a little bit. I got a DUI in Santa Monica in 2011. I was with CAA. I was just on Conan. You know, I, I, was, I was working with a former senior writer for Arrested Development on my own sitcom pilot, and I was fucking miserable. You know, I started cheating on my girlfriend. I did a little Coke. I, my weight drops to 160 pounds. a when when year before, it was 2010, because I just didn't want to eat. My career was stalled. Critics liked uh, Crazy with the capital F, you know, but the, head, the new head of Comedy Central didn't barely got played, and then this new president told my manager that they just wouldn't do another special with me, and that is how the business can work. People are always like, why don't you do another special? I would fucking love to, but if the powers that be don't like, you know, subjectively what you happen to be doing, then you just, you don't get one. Uh, and I felt really, really lost, man. I'm like, what do I do now? Uh, you know, when the special didn't do well, my, my agent at CAA dropped me. Luckily, my old agent, Stu Golfman, took me back at Innovative, but I stopped getting good auditions, you know. I felt like I'd moved to L.A. for nothing, I was divorced. I didn't know what to do with my career. Chris and I break up. Uh, I put together various pitches for some sitcom and animated shows, uh, for some host-driven shows, you know, while my agent and manager liked them. No one bought them. Over and over again, no one bought them. But I I just keep trying. I keep grinding it out. 2012, I get a role in a talking head show called World's Dumbest. I do a taping for a Showtime stand-up show in Amsterdam. The segment director there uh, likes me, casts me in a hidden camera pilot when we get back. Doesn't get picked up. we stay friends and then he gets to run some reality shows and that's how i got into consulting for reality tv he brought me on a show called porter ridge the producers of that show liked me brought me over to a show called duck dynasty worked on that for a little bit uh worked on a bunch of other reality shows in the meantime i'm still working the road putting out on albums you know putting out here this chinese affection you know last year's don't wake the bear 2012, I also met my wife, Lindsay, uh, during a taping for an ill-fated Nickelodeon stand-up show called Moms Night Out. Well, I don't know why fucking Nickelodeon thought they could get into the stand-up game, but I'm glad they did because it led to me meeting my wife. Uh, she was the wardrobe supervisor. I man, we hit it off, fell in love, uh, and, and when the kids met her, they loved her too. Uh, yeah, I'm very, very lucky to have Lindsay, man. She is fucking Awesome. Uh, I was one of the last comics to appear on this night show with Leno in 2012 Had a damn good set It was a great night Celebrated it with Lindsay I was invited back a few weeks uh, later But then Leno was off the air Fuck man If you want your late night show to fail Just have me do a set Um, I kept seeing the kids every chance I got in 2013 Uh, Kept trying to sell a showdown in LA No luck Kept trying to get a new special No luck I was getting very frustrated with my career, but then Pandora breathed new life back into it, man. Uh, Pandora started playing stand-up, as a lot of you know, How a lot of you found me, and a lot of people started making uh, Dan Cummins Pandora stations, unbeknownst to me, and people started showing up at shows and, and, and allowed me to keep you know touring. It felt like, okay, some people do actually care about what I do, so that is awesome, and thank you guys, any of you who made a station. Thank you. Uh, in 2014, my son Kyler said he wanted to live with me and Lindsay full-time. But I didn't want him to separate from his sister like I had as a kid. So Lindsay and I agreed to uh, to move to the Spokane area, so you know he and Monroe could split time between my house and, and their mom's house and not have to like make that decision. So to raise money, I toured like crazy, took reality show consulting jobs on the side. At the end of 2014, I landed a two year job at Playboy, uh, which I didn't even know was still a channel hosting a silly show called the Playboy Morning Show. Uh, so weird. I co hosted it four days a week, and it was a show with like Playboy. Uh, I co hosted with Playboy model and former reality star Andrea Lowell. Uh, great co-host. Uh, Monday through Thursday, nine to ten a.m. And then uh, I toured doing stand-up gigs most weekends. Man, I was busy. Uh, each show featured a few celebrity interviews and like a, and four new play, nude Playboy models playing like random weird games, like Know It or Show It, where you know models are asked trivia about a celebrity guest's career, and if they don't know the answers, then they take off an article of clothes. So uh, you know, working with nude Playboy models in Burbank, pretty surreal way to make enough money to buy a house for the family in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. But that's what we did. Uh, bought it in 2015. My wife moved up to Idaho just before Christmas in 2015. I moved up in November 2016 when my contract was up. And uh, you know, and Playboy, was an easy gig, man. Uh, but it was also it was also kind of just a, a mind numbing gig, uh, very artistically unsatisfying. You know, hard to complain about working with like nude Playboy models. But when you're somebody who has something to say, that's that's just that's not who I am. That's not what I wanted to do. So I, I did start to feel a little dead inside. And uh, you know, I and I wanted to feel again like I did when I was working towards that hour special. I wanted to feel like, oh man, this I'm doing what I'm passionate about, I'm doing what I love. 2015, I did tape a new special, uh, Don't Wake the Bear. Warner Brothers produced it. We shot it at the depot, a rock club in Salt Lake City. Sold out show, standing ovation, fucking great night. My manager Maggie Hulahan's there. Uh, man, Maggie, the manager I'm still with today, the one, the one whose house I'm taping this podcast in today, uh, the one I left John McDonald for after my half hour special came out when he told me that I wasn't ready for an hour special and that he couldn't get me a record deal. Well, Maggie got me both, and uh, and Maggie and my agent Joe Eschenbaugh, Warner Brothers label exec Peter Strickland, they all saw it. We all celebrated. They were like they knew it was going to sell. They knew it would sell to either Showtime or Comedy Central or Netflix. And then one by one, every network passed, and honestly, felt like my fucking career was over. Uh, But then the album You know was released It went to number one On the iTunes comedy chart Stayed there for weeks So I'm like okay People still like it There's people who still Think I'm funny Uh, Eventually made it to Amazon Where I guess you can Stream it on Prime And I guess Out of the Prime specials It plays quite a bit So so that's cool Uh, If you want to watch it Give me a rating If you don't mind Uh, And and that takes us Stand up wise Almost up to now So let's hop out of this timeline And talk about Getting into Time Suck Good job soldier You made it back Barely All right, so that's the basics of my life, man, outside of a a lot of fun family stuff that has nothing to do with time suck. Fun family stuff being I have an amazing wife and and two fantastic kids and and a dog that I couldn't love anymore. Love Penny, Kyler, Monroe, and Lindsay. And overall, man, I I I don't want to come across bitter, the thing I said before. You know, comedy's been very good to me, but it's just, you know, it's, it's ups and downs. I've had a lot of wonderful moments in comedy, some frustrating ones. And while I've tried a lot of different things, tried to sell a few sitcom ideas, tried to sell some reality shows, you know, ideas, did a lot of other things I didn't mention in this tale, wrote some sitcom episodes, appeared at a one-and-done sketch comedy show with a historical emphasis on history, uh, on the History Channel called American Wise Ass. All I've ever really wanted to do is, is have a fan base big enough to keep pumping out material that I like and make a living. A lot of the other things I've done, I've just done because I'm like, fuck, I, I, I better do this. I better not turn down this money. You know, I got, I got bills to pay. But all I've really wanted to do artistically the whole time is just, you know, basically time suck, this kind of thing. You know, do something that is artistically pleasing to me that other people enjoy that I can make a living at. And then, you know, keep putting out stand-up albums, you know, hopefully some specials, you know, and just cater to fans. It's, and, and the most frustrating thing about trying to go the other route, like trying to sell a special or a TV show or a creative project the traditional way, is that at the end of the day, it comes down to the decision of not your fans, but just a few random gatekeepers, you know, some network execs. You know, uh, you know, and not that I have put together the best pitch ever, but you could theoretically, you could spend uh, years putting together this pitch, writing out a fucking pilot, you know, a character Bible, all this work, all this work. And then eventually you get like five meetings, you get a meeting in NBC, you get a meeting in F- FX, you get a meeting at Netflix. And then if all those people say no, the project's done and no one will ever hear about it. It's maddening. You know, and, and I spent like, you know, six years in L.A., you know, do, doing that. And then a couple of years before I actually moved to L.A., you know, putting together these projects, man, putting together an animated, you know, pitch, uh, having, you know, paying somebody to, to draw out the characters, putting together, you know, the whole narrative, writing out a pilot, you know, practicing the pitch and then setting up meetings and then getting the meetings and then doing the meetings and then doing a follow up meeting after notes and then every single time, in my experience, it always, no matter how close I've come to selling a show, at the end of the day, it's a no. And then you know, it just, it just, it just goes away. You're just, you're just back at square one. You have nothing to show for it. So you know, uh, so then I just thought after a while, I'm like, well, what, what could I do? What, what kind of show could I produce? And that's where I came up, you know, on doing this uh, uh, podcast. I'm like, well. You know, I I know the audio medium has worked, you know, well for me with like Pandora and stuff. I'm like, well, maybe I could give, you know, some new audio content and put it out there. And then it took me a while to figure out, like, what should it be? And I'm like, well, what am I doing anyway? And and naturally what I'm doing is reading about weird shit my whole life. It's like I love, you know open some weird magazine and I spend 45 minutes being like, huh, learning about this, you know, narco trafficking or, you know, I'm online supposed to be writing a script and all of a sudden I'm like, what's OJ Simpson? Where, how, where is he right now? And you know, and an hour later, you know, I've learned a bunch of random shit about him and it was always like a, uh, as a form of procrastination, but I'm like, well, what if I could do that uh, as a job essentially? Because what I did like about that is whenever you spend a lot of time reading about something very interesting, you naturally want to share it. And I find that people tend to like hearing it. You know, if you have some interesting story to tell about, you know, world war II or Napoleon or fucking whatever, if you tell it the right way, people are like, Oh my God, that's awesome. I didn't know that. Like people love to receive cool new information. It makes them feel smarter. It does make them smarter. And I'm like, well, what if I could fucking find a way to make that work as a thing? And so, um, you know, I, I had done a few podcasts before that, that didn't really work. One called naked and fearless, uh, with a couple other guys where we just shared very, you know, personal stories, one called Fired Up, which was just me kind of riffing about whatever I was, you know, pissed off about. <laughs> but the recording quality wasn't that good. I didn't really know much about audio, and they just, they didn't go anywhere. So I thought, okay, I'm going to do it right. I'm going to go on a podcast network. And so now I go back to the traditional way. I'm like, now I'm back to pitching my time suck idea. I wrote out a one-page description of it to various networks, like All Things Comedy and Feral Audio in these places, and nobody wanted it. Like, no one <laughs> wanted it at all. And I'm like, God damn it. Now I'm even getting rejected on a podcast. Well, then one place finally does. CBS's podcast network, the Play It Network. They're like, okay, we're interested. And they want to do it. Well, uh, they send me a bunch of equipment. We sign a contract. Uh, They come up with a little logo. Not the one I have used, but they come up with this little, we're, we're ready to do it. I send them the initial kind of pilot, I guess. You know, I do a sample. They don't like it. It's too long. They're like, make it a half hour. Which is why my podcast started off being a half hour They're like nobody wants to hear one person Talk about this stuff for longer And for some reason I listen to them I redo it, I resend it back And now they just don't like it at all And they're like this is not marketable Like it's just sorry we just we don't we don't know what we can do with this And they just fucking drop me So now I'm dropped from it Like that was a low point I'm like Jesus Christ They don't even want to do a, a simple podcast And I'm going to do all the work to put together And they just don't even want to have their name on it So I'm like fuck these guys and I get really pissed off, and I'm like, I'm so tired of having all these projects die off of the opinions of three fucking people. And I'm like, I'm gonna put something out to my fans and let them decide. And it just and I got really motivated. I got really pissed off. I hired a buddy of mine, Jacob Kuban, awesome comic. He's the guy who actually helped me do the Daddy Bear uh, book as well. And uh, and he designed the website that I'm still using right now. Uh, he you know designed the initial logo with another guy. Uh, got it all going I, I I bought the equipment that CBS Had let me borrow You know, I just replicated and purchased all of it And then sent their stuff back to them And I'm like fuck this I figured out how to do audio editing I'm like I'm going to do the whole thing myself So no one can interfere with it And no one can take it away from me And I just started putting it out there In September And then the emails started coming in And, uh, you know, people had suggestions, and I started molding it, and the show started to morph. And what was funny, like, the main initial suggestion was make it longer. Those idiots at the Play It Network, they're like, no one wants to fucking hear it for more than half an hour. We're totally wrong. So the show (laughs) stretches out. I let the stories take whatever they're going to fucking take. And then, you know, and people start suggesting topics now. So now I start doing listener-suggested topics, and then fans start helping. You know, fans, uh, this fan Jordan Kasuzik, you know, he just... Grabbed all the social media handles, you know, made sure the time suck was reserved. He did that on his own. Started helping me with, you know, shows early on. Another fan, Sydney Shives, man, started helping me with uh, managing, you know, the emails and the topic lists and, and doing more with social media. And she still helps so much today just because she loves it. We just had an email exchange yesterday where I told her I felt bad. I didn't have, you know, like real money to give her. And she's like, I just believe in this project. And I just keep getting like, and to invade another dude out of New York, fucking awesome graphic designer. He believed in the project. He designed the next logo and he does, you know, designed some merch just because he wanted to fucking help. You know, uh, when I worked at Playboy for two years, I didn't get a single email about anyone telling me they thought I was doing a good job, not one. And I can't tell you how artistically depressing that is. You know, uh, and, and now it's like, it's, it's just like you guys just, you know, keep me going on this time suck thing. And it just keeps growing. I keep spending more time on it. You know, uh, you guys helped it grow enough by spreading the word, by spreading the suck Bojangles, Hill mimrod uh, you know, that I was able to get some sponsors, you know, and I was able to put the sponsorship money back into better equipment and, uh, and it used to start paying for an app to be designed. And I'm so excited about, you know, I just last night, I did the first live, Time Suck at, at the Melrose Improv Hollywood, I'm not sure I'll be able to release the live recording There were some weird tech problems, unfortunately, I think so We'll find out on Monday um, But it was a great show, you know And one of the people there, Maddie, Maddie Teeter She's going to be uh, an intern, she's actually going to get college Course credit in, for a history major To help with Time Suck Next, uh, you know, in, in the spring And, and be a, a research intern And I have other people, Sarah and Rebecca Lilly You know, Josh Cruz, all these other people Helping with research just because they love it you know, a professional editor, this guy Jesse Dobner's man been helping me correct grammatical stuff and my research and continuity mistakes on the episodes, on the scripts before I record them. So many other people just offered to help, and it's fucking amazing. Chris Paquel, another fan, he's heading up the app design team, gave me a great deal on an app. Another fan, Sebastian Soroka, who runs a creative uh, for an awesome branding company in Florida called Danger Brain. He's working on some cool time suck stuff. You know, it's just, it's fucking awesome, and I love that it's fucking organic. I love that it's just, you know, I, I didn't know. I just wanted to see if you guys would like it and you did. And now I, I can tell by the emails that it really matters to a lot of you. And I get why it matters. It's the same reason it matters to me. It's just, you know, when you get frustrated with the world sometimes, it's nice to know that everyone out there isn't who you think they are if you think they're all a bunch of dickheads. You know, there are a bunch of people who are just curious about the world, who are cool, who are polite, who are respectful. You know, who who want to have intellectual conversations and, and who don't care if you're liberal or conservative or atheist or religious. They're willing to reach across the fence, man, and shake your hand and fucking look you in the eye and 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 just talk about things. You know, the transgender episode, I know a lot of you guys don't agree with what I said. I That's cool. That's fine. You know, but Erica, the person I interviewed, you know, she, she said she's gotten like 20 some emails from people. Uh, just just asking her about it. And a lot of them for you know, more conservative listeners who d- don't agree with, you know, some of the choices she's made, but they're cool with the way they approach it. And, the, and she starts a dialogue with them. And, you know, and, and maybe people's minds are changed. Maybe they're not, but at least they're asking, you know, the right questions. It is this cult of the curious. It's people who want to, you know, reassess their beliefs. I've changed since I've done this. It's just been fucking great. And I just, and I just want, it's the most rewarding project I've ever done. And if, I've, if every failed project I did, all those frustrating years uh, lead to TimeSuck being a success, so worth it. You know, since I started TimeSuck, my own kids are more intellectually curious than ever. You know? We have discussions with my wife and the kids that are amazing about religion, politics, historical figures, and, you know, Bojangles, of course. <laughs> you know, and I want to take it further, but I need your help. So here's what I. This is all leading up to in this one a little bit. The sponsor shaped landscape is is a little unstable right now. Stats are being redefined by this place called the Inter- Interactive Advertising Bureau, uh, and it's shaking up podcasting uh, and probably will for a while. And it makes it kind of hard in the sh- in the short term to get consistent stats. It's a little kind of techie, a little confusing to discuss. But basically, they're you know they're trying to define like h- how to figure out what constitutes a download. And I know that sounds weird, but it's like, I guess sometimes people could like play and stop and then play and stop. And then they'll, that'll count multiple times when it's really only one listener. And they're just trying to make sure like, uh, you know, to find a, a, a correct way to identify how many people actually listen to your podcast. So sponsors know, so they're getting the proper bang for their buck. That's in a, in a nutshell. But what that does is it's kind of fucked up, you know, sponsorship income for a while, uh, which makes it hard for me to make money to kind of, you know, be able to like hire somebody, which is what I'm going to need to do to keep the suck going in the right direction. And I'm going to, you know, I want to throw some money to the, to the volunteers too. And, um, so this is what I'm doing. This is, this is what I, I, I want to develop or not want, I am developing a premium option for time suck that I hope you are going to want to participate in. Cause I really want to turn this into a community and it's the only way I can. You guys have been the ones supporting this show from the beginning. And now if you can, you know, part with a few dollars a month, Uh, I can actually get a little office, I can get a proper kind of managerial assistant and we can really fucking turn this into a community. And here's, here's what I want to do pretty soon. I'm going to start asking for $5 a month for this. And in return, what you're going to get is you're going to get an extra podcast episode a week. The regular time suck is going to continue to be free. No change in that, no change in what you've already experienced. You'll still get all of that for free, but there's going to be a second podcast a week called the secret suck. And it's going to be a more in-depth version, basically, of the Time Sucker updates. And it'll it'll play through the Time Suck app, which is looking awesome, by the way. Um, it's going to be an awesome uh, uh, times, uh, uh, podcast player. And you're going to be a space lizard. That's the name for premium listeners. And, and not only can you send me written updates, but you'll also be able to send me voice message updates through the app that I can play on the Secret Suck and address. You know, play your message and then me commenting back. Each episode will end with a new segment also, a new special segment where (laughs) we, the space lizards, are going to monitor David Icke, the man just for fun. The man uh, behind the space lizard Illuminati conspiracy theory. Uh, You know, episode one of Time Suck. David Icke is terrified that space lizards are monitoring his every move, and soon they're going to be. He he has a podcast about the lizards, and I'm going to play a little bit from that each week. We're going to monitor what he's up to, or I'll read from one of his lizard books, or I'll play something from an interview he's done about the lizards. We'll have a good laugh. It's going to be like the idiots of the internet, but it's the same idiot every week. And and I love it because it's going to be a secret podcast he'll never find. He'll never know about it. It's going to be our private joke, and it's going to be art imitating life. David Icke's worst fear is that a secret society of space lizards are watching him and, and monitoring him. And soon, a secret society of people called space lizards are actually going to be watching and monitoring him. But that's just one little part of it. That's just a little joke ending to each episode. Uh, the meat of it will be just a, a more in-depth discussion of all of our topics, you know, greater sense of community. And if you're a space lizard, you will have access uh, to the list of show topics. There's hundreds of them. And kind of like Imgur, where you can upvote or downvote, you know, pictures to see which is the most popular, we're going to do that. You can upvote and downvote topics uh, every two weeks. And the show topic with the most votes at the end of the two weeks will then be the time topic. topic for everyone to hear two weeks later. So the space lizards will control the fate of the show. So basically, like you know, two episodes a month roughly will be picked by the space lizards, by the premium listeners. And then the other two episodes, you know, I'll I'll pick like I've been doing out of your suggestions. Also, as a space lizard, you'll get a twenty percent merch discount in the store. So you know, you buy one shirt, and your discount has paid for that month's membership. And if enough of you time suckers subscribe and I can hire an assistant, I need 2,000 of you at least to subscribe for me to hire an assistant, rent an office. Make, you know, make enough to be, uh, available enough to turn down other work, to get everything I need on time suck done. If that happens, I'm going to keep adding more features to the premium version of the app, like a private message board, our own little private message board in the app, not on Facebook, not where, you know, no one else knows what you're commenting, but you go there and you get to talk to other fucking space lizards. You get to talk to other time suckers, you know, have more in-depth discussions about what's going on. Maybe set up your own little meets in various cities to, you know, talk about things, set up your own trivia night. If you want, whatever. You know, set up dates, meet meet the love of your life. You know, it's all going to be there in the, in this little Cult of the Curious little message board. And keep going with the with the options. If you get a premium membership, you're going to get a new stand-up album I'm recording this fall. I'm doing another EP like Chinese Affection. Roughly 35 minutes of previously unrecorded bits that are not going to be for sale on iTunes. They're not going to be on Pandora, not going to be on Spotify, the, not going to be on Amazon. The only way you get to hear this album, the only way you get to own it, is if you tried the premium app and then you get a link to the album emailed to you and then, yeah, then you just get to play it on whatever player you use. Cancel in the first 30 days and you just got a new album for five bucks, which is what I would have to charge for a digital EP anyway. So really, you pay for the album and then you get a free trial for 30 days of the app. So the more people to sign up, the more perks I can get. You know, I want to do this little trivia game about Time Suck built in. I want to just make fucking being a space lizard and being a time sucker, you know, the coolest club you've been a part of. And all of that for the cost of one Starbucks mocha a month. Hoping to have that out by December. It's the best thing I've ever done creatively. And, and I just, I hope we're getting started, man. Just the, the feedback has been so amazing for you guys. And I, and I want to make it so much more, turn it into a true cult of the curious, uh, you know, where we can all just keep learning about this amazing world, you know, start new friendships, you know, just keep pushing each other to question our ideas, keep reminding each other that not everyone is a fucking idiot of the internet. So, so that's it, man. That's how Time TimeSuck came to be. That's where I wanted to go. Uh, no time sucker updates, this bonus episode, no idiot to the internet, no top five takeaways, man. All of that back on Monday uh when you'll hopefully hear the first live recording. Ho- hoping to pick that up today. If not, I will re-record the episode uh for you. So you're getting you're getting uh, the Wonderland murders either way, but hopefully the live version. And uh yeah, and it was such a fun show. And so for now, I'm just gonna end by uh uh saying send some positive thoughts to our time suckers and everyone else uh recovering in Puerto Rico and Las Vegas. I'll have donation links available uh, for some stuff with Vegas on Monday's episode. And uh, and that's it. I hope you enjoyed learning a little more about me today, a little more about how the show came to be, and, and a lot more about Time Suck. So, you know, enjoy your weekend. Let's look forward to that app. Let's fucking build the cult, the curious. Hail Nimrod. Keep on sucking. Dot com slash timesuck.